You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, this is Ankit Panda, your host from New York City. And this is Prashant Parmasaran from Washington, D.C. Good to hear from you again, Prashant, although I just saw you a few days ago. How are you doing? Yeah, that's right. How are you doing? Doing well, doing well. Um, for listeners, so first of all, let me apologize that we didn't have a podcast last week, as we promised on the previous episode. Uh, but that was actually because Prashant and I uh, both ended up in Singapore, where we once again were attending the... International Institute for Strategic Studies annual Shangri-La Dialogue, uh, the Asia Pacific's, or rather Indo-Pacific's foremost forum on defense issues, uh, featuring uh, defense ministers from around the region and a few from outside the region as well. Um, so it was really, it's always a great experience to go to the Shangri-La Dialogue. Uh, this year was my third, uh, and Prashant, I think this was your fourth? Yeah, that's right. Okay, yeah, so we've both been going for a while, um, and it's been really interesting to see the trends over the years and how things are changing. Um, the context for this year's dialogue, I think, is worth underscoring. Um, we're obviously into the third year of the Trump administration, so the novelty of America first, I guess, that I remember observing during my first Shangri-La dialogue in 2017, uh, that's kind of worn off. And now um, great power rivalry is very much the core theme. Uh, of course, we had a keynote address on the opening night of the dialogue, um, featuring the Singaporean Prime Minister, uh, Prime Minister Li Shenlong, who delivered a well-received speech, I think really setting the tone for the rest of the dialogue, which of course is what a keynote speech is supposed to do. But uh, Prime Minister Li spoke very candidly, I thought, uh, from the perspective of a small country caught between great powers. Uh, we heard analogies thrown around over the weekend over what happens to the grass when elephants fight, so to speak. Um, and it should go without saying that the escalation in the trade war, the heightening rhetoric, uh, heating up rhetoric between the United States and China really um, was tense uh, throughout the dialogue. And, of course, this time we had an acting Secretary of Defense of the United States, Patrick Shanahan, in um, in Singapore delivering the speech that in previous years we heard from U.S. Uh, Defense Secretaries. Shanahan has a confirmation hearing coming up soon, so he likely will be confirmed. But... Um, I think there's still no mistake in that he wasn't necessarily given the same time of day that a fully confirmed U.S. Secretary of Defense would have received. And perhaps for that very reason, we had for the first time in eight years the confirmation of participation by China's defense minister, uh, General Wei Feng-he. Uh, so we'll talk a bit about all of these issues. And I, sh I should say before we get into our discussion today that it was very nice to actually run into a lot of podcast listeners in Singapore at the Shangri-La Dialogue uh, who expressed some uh, anticipation of this episode. Unfortunately, I didn't have my recording equipment with me in Singapore, so we had to wait a little bit until we both uh, got back stateside. Uh, but again, thanks uh, thanks to all of you who uh, we ran into who listened to the podcast and have been supporters for a while now. Um, but Prashant, I wanted to begin, um, I guess, at the start of the dialogue with uh, mm -hmm. some thoughts from you uh, on what Prime Minister Lee had to say. And in particular, I'd be curious to hear uh, if what you if you think what he said is really a message that resonates more broadly with Southeast Asian countries, because uh, I think there was some evidence that that was the case. But uh, do you think that Singapore really took the opportunity to, posi to position itself as the leader, so to speak, um, of the Southeast Asian concerns about great power rivalry? Yeah, I think so. I, I think that's definitely how they tried to frame it. So I think if you look at um, Lee Sin Lung's previous keynote address of the Shangri-La Dialogue in 2015, and you contrast it to what's going on in 2019, you get a really good sense of how much things have worsened on, on the U.S.-China uh, relationship dynamics and how it affects the region. So in 2015, he spoke about 
you know, this idea of a shifting balance of power in a very sort of general way in which we were thinking about this. Um, but in his address, he went into a lot of specifics about, you know, how the, the openness of the order was at stake, how small countries are, are forced to uh, make false choices sometimes. Um, he related various anecdotes about Southeast Asia's history and it's, you know, these various competing major powers and sort of drew analogies to the present. And I think, you know, that showed both the state of Southeast Asia with respect to U.S.-China relations, now the state of anxiety in the region. But I think it also showed, to your point about, you know, how this resonates in the region, there really are so few spokespeople in Southeast Asia in terms of leaders that are actually willing to speak out on U.S.-China dynamics, right? So Lee Sin Long is one, Mahadev from Malaysia, you know, again, another individual who's who's no stranger to speaking out. But in Indonesia, you have a, a president who isn't as outspoken, right, with respect to U.S.-China rivalry. Um, you know, Duterte is, but, you know, in, so, in a very colorful and perhaps not a very strategic way. So I, I think there really is a demand for voices in the region to actually speak out on this, which is why I think you saw um, Prime Minister Lee's speech actually referenced a lot by other Southeast Asian participants and ministers at the dialogue in subsequent sessions, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it was... Um, the Philippine uh, defense secretary who referenced it, uh, the Malaysian defense minister also referenced it a number of times in his remarks. So I, I think um, Southeast Asia, you know, was crying out for somebody who would be able to sort of speak to this. And he did so in a very careful and calibrated fashion, right? He spoke about the United States and China, but didn't speak a lot about President Trump and President Xi almost at all on the speech. Yeah. Um, so I think it was a very calibrated and, and careful decision by the Singaporeans and how they wanted to reflect that. Yeah, I think so. I mean, my reaction was a little different, I guess. Um, I mean, I, I, I liked the speech. I thought it was actually quite an honest speech uh, in the sense that it probably actually portrayed what the Singaporean leadership feels uh, when it witnesses the trade war playing out and so to speak. But on the other hand, um, parts of the speech, even though they weren't necessarily pointed at the leadership of either country too directly, um, I thought were a little risky for a country like Singapore to really put itself out there and offering a diagnosis of what ails the United States and what ails China. And they did that carefully. And I think, um, uh, you know, Singaporean Defense Minister Ung, who spoke on the final uh, plenary session on Sunday, I, um, I mean, he went a little bit further, too. You know, he, he started talking about the causes of um political malaise in the United States, including things like the opioid crisis. So Singapore is very much mm-hmm. inserting itself into the um, the great power dynamics at play. Um, but overall, you know, I thought it was a very strong speech. Of course, we had that question on Huawei. Uh, Huawei, I should also add, was a major keyword uh, throughout this year's Shangri-La dialogue, given the U.S. action against the company in May, uh, which we just discussed on a recent podcast, if you're more interested in our thoughts on that. Um, but, you know, I think uh, his answer on that also reflected a high degree of preparation and something I think, uh, you know, people have known for a while now about Li Xianlong, that he's uh, articulate and clearly um, well versed in the issues that he was discussing. Um, mm-hmm. So moving on, um, you know, we had this rare um, TikTok between the United States and China. Uh, we heard from Secretary of Defense Shanahan, acting Secretary of Defense Shanahan, rather, on uh, Saturday morning and then on Sunday morning. Uh, General Wei Feng He uh, presenting a Chinese perspective. And I don't know how you felt, but I thought there was a vast difference between how the two speeches were uh, presented and received by the audience there. Uh, So Shanahan uh, very much, I think, lacked the gravitas of a Mattis, uh, not only because of 
you know, the, the differences in persona between the two men, but also the way in which he d delivered the speech, the content of the speech itself, the fact that we had no actual reference to the Indo-Pacific, um, the Indo-Pacific um, strategy review, which was just released uh, as Shanahan spoke during his speech. And then, of course, um, the Chinese defense minister uh, really being unapologetic, sort of relishing in the experience at Shangri-La of warding off all of these questions. He was enthusiastic, energetic, um, and he was the highlight of the dialogue, uh, even if uh, he wasn't so in the right way, uh, in the sense that, you know, the message he delivered, I don't think was particularly reassuring to many in the region. Um, but that was my overall impression uh, between between the two leaders. And, you know, just to hit back on your point about the Southeast Asian uh, leaders, one of my um, favorite interactions on the sidelines of this year's dialogue came on Sunday when I was speaking with uh, an Indonesian official uh, who, you know, I asked about, you know, how how he felt about the dialogue that year, um, this year. And, uh, you know, the, the line that he said that stuck with me was that, you know, it feels like, it, it feels like the United States and China are here to have a debate in my living room. Uh, and, you know, that was interesting. It was sort of that idea of ASEAN centrality that comes up every year in, um, Shangri-La dialogues, the idea of the Southeast Asians feeling like spectators in their own backyard to a broader mm -hmm. uh, great power showdown. But um, so how'd you, uh, how would you um, rate respectively uh, the performances by Shanahan and uh, General Wei? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the contrast between the two of them was quite evident, right? So you, as you said, I mean, with Shanahan, there was always going to be a very high bar um, given, you know, Mattis's performances at the Shangri-La Dialogue previously. And also, you know, Mattis's role as kind of, you know, re reassurer in chief, right? Mm -hmm. In the Trump administration. So, um, Shannon had a high bar, and also I do think that um, with uh, Wei Fenghe and, and the Chinese, the fact that he even showed up, you know, the, the bar was quite low for the Chinese, right? You know, the fact that he was there, there was only so so much hype about the fact that he even arrived because this was the highest level that the Chinese had sent in, in what, close to a decade, right, to the dialogue. So the fact that he was there, folks were interested in, in hearing his perspective. But the U.S., we've been hearing this constant message in terms of substance, from the Trump administration. So I think the focus was more on style rather than substance. And I think on style, Wei Fenghe, I mean, he, the substance-wise, substance it was quite predictable in terms of what he was saying. I mean, right. all the traditional lines. But I thought in the Q&A, he kind of, you know, lightened up a little bit once he actually, you know, sort of engaged with the audience. Uh, you know, and cracked a couple of jokes in there. And he seemed a little bit more comfortable relative to Shanahan, I think, who was, was a bit guarded mostly because the questions he received were sort of doubting U.S. policy and credibility when he was there to sort of say, well, the United States is here, we have this new strategy. It didn't seem like the message resonated with the audience, but I think part of that was because uh, there was a lot of confusion as to, you know, what he was saying versus the release of the report, and most of the folks hadn't actually read the report or were aware that um, it was coming out to time with the dialogue, right? Yeah, that's so, right. And, I mean, it was a sixty. It was a sixty-plus page report, so there's no way that folks were going to get through it as he was speaking, right? So yeah, no, I had to go back to my you know hotel room later that night and read the report. Uh, it was a bit of a you know kind of a mess up, I think, when it comes to public diplomacy and messaging that you release this really important strategy document while all of you know Asia's security watchers are convened in meetings all day and don't actually have time to reflect on it. So if they'd released it a week earlier, I think that would have been probably the better move. Then you know we could have all had some time to digest it. And then actually had a conversation around it at Shangri-La. 
yep. you know, also on Shanahan, I mean, uh, yeah, just the way he, I think, interacted with the audience during the Q&A wasn't very reassuring. Uh, you know, I think he mm-hmm. asked the moderator to uh, take fewer questions than had originally been planned, you know, wanting to kind of end things before he had to interact too much with the audience. So it was it was rather a, st- a strange message. Um, and of course, you know, General, yeah. um, General Way also got, you know, he got some tough questions, I guess, but probably, you know, questions that he could have predicted. He was obviously speaking just days away from the 30th anniversary of the Tiananmen Square massacre, and he was asked about that, and, you know, he delivered a chilling answer that, um, you know, the the actions that the Chinese government authorized on that day were what effectively secured um, mm-hmm. the party's prosperity. So I think that really shocked many people in the audience, uh, certainly people that I spoke to. Um, yeah, so I think, you know, the uh, those two addresses this year really, I think, offered that, you know, great power TikTok. Um, and I should add, you know, also what um, I understand about the Chinese participation this year was that uh, it came, it was confirmed after Mattis's resignation. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if China calculated astutely that the United States wouldn't have a Senate-confirmed Secretary of Defense by the time of the Shangri-La dialogue, but if they did, it paid off because um, I think General Wei really was what most people were anticipating and also probably the highlight of the dialogue this year. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so, you know, moving away a bit from the great powers, um, I think there were, you know, there's a lot of other issues to talk about about this year's Shangri-La dialogue. So one of the things I found unfortunate, and this is not, you know, in any way... Um, double I double S's fault or shortcoming um, was the ironic absence of any high-level Indian representation the very year that the Indo-Pacific is at the center of the Shangri-La dialogue. Uh, that was very mm-hmm. much a question that came up in a lot of the discussions and side discussions and sideline interactions is the distinction between the Asia-Pacific and the Indo-Pacific and the Indo-Pacific strategy, the free and open Indo-Pacific, the geography of the Indo-Pacific. What is this concept? What does it mean to a variety of people? And of course, um, India, New Delhi has a lot of sort of strong and interesting views on that issue. And we didn't really get to hear an Indian perspective this year. And of course, the reasoning for that um, has to do with the fact that India didn't have a government as the Shangri-La dialogue opened. And Narendra Modi was just being sworn in, and he did appoint a defense minister, Rajnath Singh, um, during the dialogue. But, of course, somebody would have to write a speech for the new defense minister to deliver, and it just wasn't a practical uh, time frame for the Indians to come and participate in a plenary session. So that, I thought, was unfortunate. Um, but, you know, zooming out a bit from that and reflecting on this Indo-Pacific dilemma, um, I kind of got the sense that by the end of the del- uh, by the end of the dialogue, a lot of the participants uh, grew a little bit tired of the Indo-Pacific debate. Uh, it's not as if we got a lot of clarity um, across the speeches, and you know we heard a predictable endorsement of the concept by officials from Japan, Australia, the United States. Um, the South Korean defense minister, I think, uh, was more reticent, and we heard um, at a side session at least. Uh, Russian Deputy uh, Defense Minister Alexander Fomin actually deliver a criticism of the Indo-Pacific as a block designed to uh, contain um, rising powers, uh, including China and uh, also implicitly Russia in his comments. But, you know, going to Shangri-La this year, did you um, really get what you were hoping for on on the broader Indo-Pacific debate? Or did it seem like, you know, things kind of fizzled a little? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think it, the sense you provided is right in terms of it, the conversation seems to almost have plateaued a little bit, um, and kind of the dividing lines have become clearer. So, the the noticeable stuff that we saw last year will kind of reinforce this year in terms of you know none of the Southeast Asian delegates really referenced the Indo-Pacific in any meaningful way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and with the Chinese and also the Russians, there was a sense that this is actually something hostile directed at them, or it's an exclusive concept that comes at their expense. 
but you also heard from you know from Australia, from Japan, um, from France, and other countries that you know already naturally have an Indo-Pacific strategy or approach or vision. Um, they are sort of doubling down on the concept, and they've actually come out with details, um, including you know Australia. I thought was really interesting that they provided more of a sense of how the Pacific fits into the Indo-Pacific, right? Uh, given the fact that there have been more conversations about the South Pacific and, and the Australians feeling like they really need to own that aspect of the strategy. So I think you're seeing a concretization of, of things that we're already seeing. But I agree with you. I mean, there isn't really much um, in terms of substance that's new. I think, ironically, you know, we talked about um, Shanahan and, and the release of the Indo-Pacific Strategy Report. That's probably one of the key substantive things that we got from the dialogue that's actually quite significant, right? Because we've talked about the Indo-Pacific vision and the Trump administration's approach, and there's always been this question, you know, is this actually going to translate into a strategy? Are these people really thinking about this? And I think the fact that there is a document, that there is a strategy, at least shows that the Pentagon is invested in this and they're actually doing it. But obviously, that raises questions about, A, whether this is going to translate into funding and it's going to sustain beyond the Trump administration with the election next year. And then the second question is, obviously, we've heard this from the Pentagon, but are all the other agencies involved in, in similar ways and are they are they resourcing uh, to a similar level to ensure coordination in U.S. policy? We don't know that. But I do think that that Indo-Pacific strategy report was a good illustration of, of a substantive uh, point of progress for the U.S. approach, at least. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Um... Yeah. So, you know, I mean, the sense that I got again talking to uh, Southeast Asian delegates is that um, the effort made last year by Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi, who was the keynote last year, and Jim Mattis, uh, the idea that the Indo-Pacific is complementary to and respects ASEAN centrality, I think those concerns remain in place that for Southeast Asia, I think endorsing the Indo-Pacific concept is being seen as shorthand for endorsing effectively a containment strategy. And that's been, um, I think, one of the messaging challenges around the Indo-Pacific that I think the U.S. has gotten right at points. Um, I think the most effective parts of messaging uh, embedded in Shanahan's speech. I mean, look, I thought Shanahan's speech had a lot going on. Uh, you know, we heard at points it sounded like a U.S. Department of Defense fact sheet on everything the United States was doing in Asia. You know, we started hearing about the U.S.-Mongolia bilateral relationship, and it was just very discordant at times. Um, but the most effective parts were the emphasis on the Indo-Pacific strategy being designed to maximize sovereignty. And I think that's what a lot of these countries want to hear, uh, that they're not being forced to choose, as Prime Minister Lee warned, uh, between the U.S. and China. But what the United States and its like-minded partners are trying to do is maximize the room for maneuver for all of these countries in the region, small, medium, and large, so that they don't have to feel coerced. Um, and I think that, unfortunately, didn't get played up as much as it could. So I think the dialogue ended with the conversation sort of plateauing, as you noted, but also um, a lot of the people who came uh, less, you know, who weren't convinced about the Indo-Pacific strategy to begin with, I think probably also left with a, a similar degree of skepticism about the effort. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I think one of the things that also struck me uh, about halfway through the dialogue this year was that uh, this could have been a very different sort of Shangri-La dialogue, right? I mean, I think Prime Minister Lee did do an effective job of setting the tone for the discussion in terms of great power competition. Uh, but of course, he wasn't meant to keynote this year. Uh, it was supposed mm -hmm. to be French President uh, Emmanuel Macron who uh, withdrew for a variety of reasons, but he'd been confirmed to uh, deliver the keynote this year. And France, I think, made an interesting splash um, at at this year's Shangri-La dialogue. Uh, we've we've talked before on this podcast uh, about external powers in the Indo-Pacific, and of course, um, the French have always used Shangri-La, I think, for an important 
show of their presence in the region. Um, Jean-Yves Le Trignon in um, 2016, I think, delivered a pretty major speech at Shangri-La about France's interest in the South China Sea. But um, Florence Parly, uh, the French defense minister, returned this year, and I think she delivered probably the strongest speech, in my opinion. I think um, a lot of the other delegates kind of shared that view, uh, especially uh, Western delegates, I should add. Um, I think she delivered the most cogent defense of the rules-based order while also making a case for why France is an Indo-Pacific nation. And as we've discussed yeah, before, France with a little has... bit of humor too. Yeah, <laughs> no. Uh, yeah. So that's actually, yeah, I should probably point that out. So she uh, poked. So she was uh, speaking on the same panel as uh, Penny Mordant, the new um, British defense minister, uh, defense secretary. And uh, she said that she hadn't come to Singapore alone. She'd brought along the Charles de Gaulle, uh, France's only <laughs> aircraft carrier, uh, which I actually got to board on Sunday, which was a nice uh, experience. Maybe we can talk a little bit about that later. But um, uh, yeah, I think it was an important sh- a reminder that you know France has an expeditionary power projection capability in the Asia Pacific right now, while the UK waits for its... Um, next generation carriers to uh, get up and running. Um, but I really thought the French, uh, you know, um, made the most of it, even without the keynote this year. Uh, the Again, you know, I think there was some concern about France effectively using its colonial possessions in the Indo-Pacific region to justify why it's an Indo-Pacific country. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I think that's a point well taken. Uh, there are, you know, 1.5 million French citizens living in these territories, um, as I think um, Florence Paris, uh said in her speech. And also the reminder, as we always keep hearing from the French, about the fact that they actually have the most exclusive economic zone of any country in the Indo-Pacific, mm-hmm. depending on how far you want to go. Um, yep. But uh, do you share that assessment of um, of uh, the French uh, defense minister's speech this year? Um, and also, I mean, you know, I think just the whole idea of Macron kind of keynoting this and making a case for outside powers in the Indo-Pacific, I think, could have been quite interesting. Yeah, that's right. I mean, and I think this goes to the point that you emphasized earlier, which I think is really important as a broader point for Shangri-La, right? So this was traditionally something where you saw a lot more uh, of a focus on Asia. It's an Asian security dialogue. Um, but you've had over the past few years an increasing amount of European representation, but also more generally extra regional powers, as you noted, right? So we had participation this year, you know, the French were here, the you know, the British, but also the Canadians, right? Uh, the Canadian defense minister was here for a second year running uh, as well. So y- you are seeing this, and, and this plays into U.S. strategy too, right? I mean, I think the United States has tried to emphasize this point about the rules-based order and you know preserving principles. Um, but the allies that they're using are not only allies in Asia, they're also uh, sort of talking about the Europeans, they're talking about the Canadians and other countries helping to sort of preserve the rules-based order. And it's good to have a more inclusive conversation that's not only just about the United States as being the only extra-regional player. Um, this is a broader conversation. And I think this year... Sweden also had representation as well. So it's interesting to see this overall increase in European participation the last few years that we've been there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I will say about France, um, this is not a reflection on the defense minister's speech, I should say. But, you know, so when I was on board uh, the Charles de Gaulle, we got a briefing um, from a French official about the Indo-Pacific and France. And of course, we heard, you know, many of the same points that the defense minister delivered. Um, But, you know, we were given actually this um, document that the French had prepared, uh, which is available uh, publicly on their website, uh, totally unclassified. Uh, But it's a, you know, it was, again, that description of the geography of the Indo-Pacific and where France is. And it was this really interesting map uh, of the Indo-Pacific region with lines drawn, um, you know, showing off France's massive EEZ with French flags everywhere. Um, And at one point, again, uh, you know, a Southeast Asian official came up to me and, and, you know, made a joke that, you know, can you imagine how people would react in this part of the world if 
you had Chinese officials show up in an aircraft carrier handing handing out maps with uh, circles drawn for their easy claims and flags everywhere, which, you know, point well taken. Obviously, I think, uh, you know, the French claims are slightly different. Obviously, these are um, part of French territory. Uh, but what was most interesting is that that map also was accompanied by a charting of French naval deployments in the Indo-Pacific over the past three years. And it was very interesting to note that the naval deployments actually didn't correspond to the location of French territories whatsoever. Uh, so, you know, France mm -hmm. talks about French Polynesia, Clipperton, all the way, um, you know, by Mexico in the in the very um, far reaches of the Pacific. And then, of course, it's uh, southern Indian Ocean territories. But most of its naval deployments, like you would expect, are... Um, it, you know, to the north, at least north of the mm -hmm. equator, um, in the South China Sea, uh, in the northern Indian Ocean, uh, nearby the Korean Peninsula. Uh, so, you know, that I think mismatch in what France says it's in the Indo-Pacific for and what it actually ends up doing, I found to be quite interesting. And I think, you know, the French should lean into that, this whole justification that we're an Indo-Pacific country because of our territories and our 1.5 million citizens. I think that's probably good for domestically justifying these kinds of deployments. But Honestly, you know, the beauty of the rules-based order should be that any country, uh, especially a P5 member like France, can be in the Indo-Pacific participating in these activities. And that actually mm -hmm. takes me to another thing that I found interesting during the dialogue was that um, the Korean Peninsula did not come up as much as it did last year. Uh, obviously, we heard from uh, uh, there was a plenary session that featured the Japanese and Korean uh, defense ministers. I'm speaking about the issue but um, alongside the uh, EU high representative, Federica Mogherini, uh, which was a really good session, I thought. But one of the interesting things was the sanctions enforcement activities in the Indo-Pacific and how that how prominent that was this year. Uh, so obviously this was coming just shortly after the U.S. Uh, Department of Justice seized and towed the wise, honest, uh, the second largest tanker in North Korea's um, in North Korea's commercial fleet for its participation in uh, illicit activities and the enforcement of UN Security Council Resolution 2375 was something that several officials referenced. I think we heard it from the Canadians, the French, um, the Brits, uh, the United States, um, Japan. And I think the reason we heard about it so much is that it is a very good example of a component of enforcing the rules-based order that has very little directly to do with China in that, um, you know, we now see naval and Coast Guard deployments designed to monitor North Korean illicit ship-to-ship -ship transfers at sea that um, are sanctioned by a United Nations Security Council resolution. So China can't necessarily point to those activities as, you know, a um, at least part of a so-called containment approach uh, towards, um, towards Beijing. And of course, there was a China angle to this. Shanahan talked about a picture book given uh, being given to China yeah. showing uh, illicit ship to ship transfers taking place within Chinese territorial waters. Um, but that was a really interesting component. And I think, uh, you know, that's probably a good thing that uh, we are talking about these components of um, maritime activities that have to do with really, you know, if there's anything rules based about the, the order in Asia, it is probably the UN Security Council sanctions um, enforcement regime around North Korea. So it was um, it was quite interesting to uh, hear that come up a lot this year. Yeah, that's right, and I I think it it really is striking if you if you think about like the last few iterations of of the Shangri La dialogue when you have changes in the areas of focus they're usually quite dramatic, right? So in 2017 we had this it was right after the Marawi attack, so terrorism was kind of front and center. It was very clearly the focus of the dialogue, and then last year North Korea was definitely you know front and center because you had Shangri La dialogue right before uh, the first summit between Trump and Kim. 
And this year, you know, the U.S.-China competition dynamic was just so visible as the theme that, you know, it was unmistakable, right? Yeah. Um, but at the same time, North Korea, relative to last year, I agree with you. I mean, definitely is a, a dramatic reduction in terms um, of the focus this year. I think the other thing that, that was really interesting was, you know, several of the Southeast Asian countries were trying to reference, um, you know, it was almost like they were, they wanted to sort of mention the, the China piece and South China Sea to some degree, but relative to last year in particular, I thought the content on South China Sea was actually quite limited. Oh yeah, um, and they were they were trying to focus more on you know transnational crimes and and terrorism and you know we need a we need to strengthen institutions. And South China Sea was almost like um, you know Shanahan spent more time on that and the Chinese spent more time on that talking about it rather than the Southeast Asian states themselves. Yeah, well, I mean, no, you're absolutely right. I'm really glad you brought that up. Uh, but even with Shanahan in the Western countries, I mean, the South China Sea was just way less prominent this year. I mean, you know, Shanahan mm -hmm. kind of did the laundry list of, yeah, you know, we we condemn the militarization of features, yada, yada. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's also interesting that when he was talking about the South China Sea, initially at least, uh, he was doing a very kind of, you know, 2015 Obama administration style criticism of, you know, certain countries in the South China Sea, not naming China. And then, of course, later in his speech, he named China. So I'm not sure what was going on. Uh, at the staffing yeah. level there, maybe they were cutting and pasting from old speeches, but um, that I found to be a little odd. But yeah, I mean, it, it, it's especially ironic because last year, such a prominent theme among all the Western defense ministers was that, you know, none of us are going to stand up and accept China's fait accompli in the South China Sea. And this year, by virtue of the lower profile of the South China Sea more broadly, I think exactly that has happened, uh, that the idea that China has gotten away with militarizing these islands came up. I don't, so I don't actually recall um, it might have been a Shanahan speech, but I don't actually recall any references to the 2016 arbitral tribunal ruling. No, I, I think it came up in maybe the Q&A um, okay. rather than in the speeches in terms of like, you know, making sure that any code of conduct is in line with international right. law. And um, But you're right. I don't think any of the speeches uh, particularly referenced that. And that was definitely front and center um, in earlier iterations of the dialogue. Um, and I think, you know, you're, you're, the point about... Um, I, you know, I, I know we're going back to this, um, we've already said it, but I, I do want to emphasize, I mean, there really were some really, um, you know, big disconnects between what Shanahan was saying and what the Indo-Pacific strategy report said. Yeah. So you, you're right. I mean, he, he didn't mention, uh, he wasn't tough on China or harsh on China, but the Indo-Pacific strategy report, you know, had very tough wording uh, for China and China actually... And Wei, Wei Fenghe in his address seemed to be reacting to the report rather than what Shanahan was saying, because he Shanahan dialed down the criticism of China in his remarks. Yeah. Um, but and so it was very difficult to see if the delegates were responding to what Shanahan was saying or what the report was saying. It's the same thing with ASEAN centrality. The the actual Indo-Pacific strategy report goes into a lot of detail about ASEAN centrality and multilateralism. But I think in Shanahan's speech, he only mentioned ASEAN centrality just once as a, kind of a passing reference and then moved on. So. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, overall, I don't think he was received particularly strongly this year. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, the South China Sea, I think, just really jumped out at me. Just that, uh, yeah, absolutely. After saying in 2018 that you're not going to accept the fait accompli, I think. Um, the international community has just come to terms with the new realities in the South China Sea. And of course, you know, we heard from um, the Malaysian defense minister, um, Sabu, about the South China Sea after I believe three questioners had to pester him to answer the one question about Laconia Shoals. Uh, mm -hmm. And then he finally addressed it. Um, and Lorenzana from the Philippines also, you know, warned about not sleepwalking into war. So there's this perception among this uh, 
at least the Southeast Asian defense ministers, a lot of them, that, uh, you know, talking about the South China Sea will only make things worse in this time of great power competition uh, rather than uh, improve things, at least from a Southeast Asian perspective, which is which is troubling again, because I think it's, uh, you know, entirely the wrong direction for the region to be moving in. Um, so we are running out of time. I know that we have a lot to talk about when it comes to Shangri-La, but you know, just one closing reflection I wanted to offer when you were talking about the themes every year being obvious and really stemming from the news cycle. I, mm -hmm. I agree with that. Um, but one of the things that I thought was sort of a gaping hole at this year's Shangri-La, and maybe you know why I've always felt that the Shangri-La dialogue is an Asia-Pacific security conference. It's not an Indo-Pacific security conference. It's very much concerned with affairs that occur, you know, east of the Malacca Strait was the complete absence of any discussion at any level. Uh, there, was a, there wasn't even a side event about this this year, about the near um, total war between uh, India and Pakistan in February. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, this is an Asian security conference uh, that I think was probably the most serious and disturbing development this year uh, in many ways, given the potential downside. Um, but it didn't come up. Uh, and, you know, it's not like that there hasn't been precedence for uh, India-Pakistan issues being discussed at Shangri-La. Uh, the Pakistanis uh, sent very limited uh, representation this year. I think it was only non-governmental, actually. So we didn't have Indian high-level participation because of the government formation, and the Pakistanis didn't send anyone, uh, even though in previous years we've had, you know, Pakistani uh, military officers at the plenary sessions even uh, sitting on the stage. Uh, so that was a pretty glaring gap this year. But again, I think it emphasized that the origins of the Shangri-La dialogue are very much in the kind of old understanding of the Asia-Pacific, uh, being uh, Northeast Asia, Southeast Asia, Oceania, and and the Pacific. And so I think mm -hmm. uh, this year we saw the dialogue return to those roots a little bit, uh, which is, again, ironic because uh, everybody, I think, came to Singapore this year expecting to have their uh, ears bleeding with mentions of the Indo-Pacific by the end of it. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. Um, all right, Prashant, we'll, uh, we'll end it there. And uh, hopefully mm -hmm. uh, for uh, people I ran into in Singapore who were looking forward to this discussion, uh, this uh, about covered um, everything that we had to do. But we'll, uh, I suspect we'll come back uh, to a few other takeaways from Shangri-La uh, in the upcoming episodes. Uh, there's a lot certainly going on. Um, but Prashant, uh, thanks a lot for joining me. It was good seeing you in Singapore last week. Yeah, good to be with you. Great. Uh, so for our listeners, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, but you haven't yet subscribed, uh, make sure you do so so you can catch up with future episodes, which are very similar to this one. And if you've been a subscriber for a while, but you haven't yet left us a review, uh, please do so on your platform of choice. Uh, again, a reminder that we are available for subscription on Google Play, iTunes, Spotify, and a range of other uh, third-party providers as well. And uh, we'd, we'd love to have your review at any of those. So uh, thanks a lot for listening, and uh, we'll be back next week with more.